Welcome to Positive Disintegration, a path to authenticity. In this episode, we're going to be covering the second half of a two-part conversation with Enfbar Fields and Joy Lin. And this is a conversation around the experiences of being profoundly gifted. In this episode, we're going to talk about health differences in the gifted population, both physical and mental. We'll talk about overexcitabilities and the impact that that can have on the lives of the gifted. And we'll also be talking about making a difference in the world, collaborating together and also working in small ways to make the world a better place. Thanks for rejoining us and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello listeners, welcome back to Positive Disintegration Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. Hi, Chris. Hey, Emma. Nice to be back with you again. So this conversation is the second part in a two-part series about experiences of being profoundly gifted. So in this second conversation, we're rejoining our guests, Anth Barfields, the founder of Elysian Trust, and Joy Lin, PhD student of gifted education leadership at the University of Denver. Next topic, I think let's talk about the question about interesting mental issues and health issues that we've dealt with. I already shared how college really started a um, disintegration moment for me with my friend coming out, but I really struggled through some stuff. I overrode my um, intuition and got my way and transferred to Colorado for college for a boy that lasted so, it was so quick. But I was happy to end up in Colorado. But while I was here, I had a lot of trouble and I had this crushing depression and was diagnosed, um, went to the mental health clinic, um, went to a psychiatrist, was diagnosed with anxiety, was given some meds that did not feel good to take. And a couple things. One, most of my depression tended to clear up when I made big life changes to fix it. And for example, I said I moved here for a boy. I was not supposed to be with that boy forever. And um, ending that relationship helped, helped me not be as depressed. But that anxiety, it was still strong. And I remember going to the psych and the psychiatrist saying, you're vitamin D deficient. And I was like, ha, huh, whatever. I made a joke sunshine. You know, I, I just didn't understand how critical that was at the time because I'm an indoor cat, you see. And I kind of blew that off and off and on. I've had these health issues as a young adult and in my twenties and eventually was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And, um, that was like in a March one year. And the the month before I had been diagnosed with vitamin D deficiency and I actually went in and picked up my prescription on the day of my MS flare up, my first flare up. And when I went to the neurologist later, I said, okay, I can't really walk. What do I do? Do I need a handicap sticker? Do I need a cane? You know, I, I was very dramatic and upset and having all of the feels. And he's like, well, just stick with your vitamin D for a minute. And I was like, what, what? And I did, and it really, really made a huge difference. But it's not just sun. It's, 
it's also like water and hydration and nutrients. And um, I've really had to break, disintegrate the messages I've received in childhood in particular around what is a healthy meal? What should I be eating? And media tells me I should be eating Doritos. I should be eating, I don't know. In my childhood, it was like Sunny D and stuff like that. But breaking down those messages and then reconstructing with other knowledge, what is good nutrition like? What are good electrolytes that I should be consuming? And that has been um, a lot of work for me. And I think that anxiety really helped me disintegrate some stuff that was stressing me out and making me worry. And I did have phases of suicidal ideation in the sense of, well, if I'm going to ever do that, I'm going to do it effectively and not messily and not ineffectively. So I would think about it sometimes, especially more like in high school, but I've never actually felt actually suicidal or um, that I wanted to actually end things for myself, which helped. And then I think that my openness to experience has also led to a willingness to try different things, different substances. And my rational side reins me in a little, and there are things I haven't tried, not meth, not even once, for example. But that willingness to taste the world butts up against the world's definitions of what isn't isn't a drug, what isn't isn't a crime, what isn't isn't legal this year where I live, et cetera. So those are some things I've dealt with personally. And I think that um, gifted people in particular, but anyone who works inside, they really need to make sure that they have good vitamin D, either by sunshine or supplement or something, something. You need, mm. you need to have it somewhere. Joy, talking about anxiety, it, you made me wonder, you know, while you're talking about you know, that issue, like what's your experience of, since you brought up openness to experience, just say something about your experience of overexcitability, please. Oh, I have them all. <laughs> and, um, I took the OEQ two. I think I scored a five on everything. I probably would have scored more than a five if the scale had gone higher on a few of them. Intellectual, imaginational, emotional, psychomotor, sensual. I have them all. Mm. And I thought, initially, I thought, oh, I don't have psychomotor. I'm not athletic. But it's more than that. It's more than athleticism. And my motor mouth, my chatteriness, my complex rules to problems or games that I create, you know, those all show that um, psychomotor. And I've had a lot of fun on like a um, yoga ball as my desk chair, for example, or um, other other high-paced, high-clicky things like video games. Sometimes I really enjoy that. But, you know, I know there's some research around, like, emotional, imaginational, and intellectual OE sort of trending with giftedness. But that sensual for me has been a, I'm going to say, a problem. <laughs> because my sensual OE and my openness to experience have led me to experience as many things as I can in different arenas. And um, I think that had I known about OE in younger adulthood, had my counselors, therapists, educators, parents been more aware, maybe some of that could have been reined in and I could have had a more healthy um, 
experience stimulating my sensual OE, but rather I hit exploration with the same intensity I can lean into any of my passion areas mm-hmm. and was able to try all sorts of things in new and creative ways with that intensity. And it was funny because when I went through the OE, I was like, oh, yeah, I got this. I got this bad. And um, now I try to sometimes positively stimulate my overexcitabilities and make sure I have a nice way to vent to them in a healthy, productive, beneficial way, not just a self-destructive, my life doesn't matter anymore. Why not try this too, whatever this is. I, when you were just saying that, I was thinking of like bleeding a radiator, you know, like you're venting your overexcitabilities, but sorry, that just was, um, but that's my imaginational, which is like, I'm always picturing right. things. Although we've had multiple people on this podcast who have aphantasia. So I realize that that's, you know, a thing too, like the opposite. Um, so Nth, what interesting things do you have to share about health? Um, so I can share a couple of observations before I do. I will share some personal things that, uh, overlap with joy. I, she and I have discussed this before, but it was such a surprise. So she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So was I, um, she, uh, has a vitamin D deficiency. So do I, so it would take what you will from that. In terms of, I, I, I always wind up talking about a lesion, but it, it's on my mind a lot and it, it plays a huge role in my life. And in terms of a lesion, what I've noticed is that, um, Health issues, they seem to be more of a thing with people who get really, really, score really, really high on, on any test, be it IQ or any, or intuition or critical thinking or creative thinking. They're seeing, I've seen plenty of studies that suggest, if not confirm, that there is a positive correlation between health and longevity and, and what they call it intelligence, what they're really talking about IQ, um, up to, but it's only up to a certain point. Like, um, the tests generally, they only seem to show a positive correlation up to around 120, 125, maybe beyond that. There's, you're looking at the law of diminishing returns. It seems to be the higher up you go, the more likely you're going to have, allergies, the more likely you're going to have stress-related illnesses, definitely mental health uh, issues, if not in in you, then in your family line. It's been eye-opening for me, and I've been trying to figure out how to use that information to better fulfill our mission. And it's not, to some extent, we have to carve out our own path because I love to work with peer-reviewed studies, but what I'm seeing over and over again is a lot of them, they have a lot of, I'm not going to say they're sloppy, but they're missing a lot of information or their methodology is just, it's wrong. And sometimes it just seems like they already had, the researchers already had a conclusion and they were just looking to confirm it. And that's not... It's not really working to extrapolate the the findings from the the various studies on the topic and apply them to people I know in real life. So we're more or less forging our own path there and trying to figure out what to work with here. I'll give you an example. What we're noticing is 
there's uh, quite a few drugs that simply do not work on people in our groups the way they're supposed to or the way they work for the average person. That That's not a surprise because medicine, I've been, again, I've been in plenty of studies. I've been in over a hundred of them as a test subject. They purposely screen out people who are outliers. <laughs> so it's not a surprise if, uh, you know, a, a headache medicine works differently for this subpopulation that we're talking about. Because we weren't the focus. They were looking at what works for 99.9% of the the human population. They're not particularly concerned about the 0.1% of the population unless the effects are so detrimental that it costs a pharmaceutical company money. And that sounds horrible to say. You think uh, it'd be something more humanitarian, but that's what it boils down to. So the question becomes, what should we do uh, for the people in our group and what we're often doing? And Joy, you and Chris are both in Elysian. I don't know if you saw the recent uh, thing where one of our members has this medical mystery that doctors can't solve. Are the people in the group work together to solve it? And we've done that over and over and over again. We'll probably have to continue until there's a a phenomenal change (laughs) in the way uh, we view health and its intersection with, for lack of a better term, intelligence. In terms of overexcited abilities, there are some social things that probably I've never seen addressed, but I know they need to. Um, a A lot of gifted kids, they fall into different subcategories right so there's some gifted kids they're introverted they're not they're happy you know with with books and just being alone and stuff like that they're never going to really get into trouble but there are some gifted kids who are the exact opposite and their brain is looking for external stimulation in ways that could put them at risk and unless you're addressing why that's occurring unless you're addressing that oh yeah this type of sensation it, they're feeling it differently their brain is wired in such a way that they are feeling this physical sensation differently than the average person is so it you have to address that oh, this is almost like a drug addiction for them to the first time they experience sex or, or the first time they take a drug or something like that it you have to take that into account to figure out how to carve out the the wisest and healthiest path for them. And unfortunately, our most cultures I've seen, they are not well equipped for that. It's an uncomfortable topic for them. And I'm seeing a a, a I'm not going to say a sliver, a small but very significant portion of gifted young adults fall through the cracks and they're crashing hard because they do not have an adequate support network. The set, the support network that is in place just isn't designed to handle the way their their minds work. Similar to how the medical community is not really equipped <laughs> to to address how intelligence, at least high intelligence, 
I'm, I'm talking, and I hate using that term because I do think intelligence is more than just an IQ score. But when you're talking about people whose IQ scores are 135, 145, 50, 155, 165, and so on, it's not just like uh, comparing hot water to steam, right? It it's actually is steam. It's not. It's no longer just hot water, and the properties change, and. It's I, I I just see it over and over again. I'd love to see something phenomenally change and soon. It would definitely help. Um, and it's also and it wouldn't just necessarily help the the profoundly gifted or extremely gifted community. I think it would help all of humanity because it's every time we finally make a breakthrough that accommodates outliers. There's always discoveries from that that benefits the rest of humanity. This I see no reason why this would be an exception. I'm going to get off my high horse because I can keep t- preaching about this uh, over and over for at length, but that's the gist of what uh, what my views are regarding that subject. I think um, that steam analogy, which I love, by the way, I think, was that Linda or Michael? Someone wrote about that, right? I think it's Linda. It was Linda. She presented that at um, the Triple Nine Society meeting, I think, in 2018. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just, it's such a good analogy. Yeah. It really it, is. No, and it, it's applicable. It, so. it really highlights the social environment. It's the pressure and the environment we're in that allows some people to become steam, I guess. Too much pressure. Maybe we'd stay droplets. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just have to say, like, and th- I mean, the way you just wrap that up, I mean, you're really like talking about, I mean, that's what happened to me. Like I, when I was a kid had this enormous need for stimulation, mm-hmm. you know, of multiple ways, but really I was so drawn to drugs. Mm-hmm. Just this morning I was on Jen Harvey sounds podcast conversations on gifted trauma. And I was talking about, you know, when I was a kid, like I became like a drug addict in my mind before I ever tried them in reality. But the fact is, like, I mean, when I did them, I could tell that I responded to them so much more strongly than other people. And it was just like, that's how my overexcitability is kind of, you know, like, it's, it's exactly what you were just talking about. And you're right about like, just falling through the cracks. Because I mean, for me, I just ended up in the mental health system. And I was like, addicted to drugs. And I've been addicted to more than one drug. And I've been addicted to gambling. And Mm -hmm. I've overcome like so much addiction in my life that it's like, ridiculous. Sure. And so I know that there are other people like me, I know, because like, I was in the mental hospital with them. And, you know, like, I know how many like, profoundly gifted people populate mental hospitals, like, yes, more than you would think. And prisons, unfortunately. Yes. And I got to tell you, right. I am so happy to hear that you overcame that. And uh, it's truly, it's uh, to me, it's awesome that you're in the position to where you can help others um, who are going through that as well. So, yeah, my hat's off to you. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I it's very important to me to try and, like, give back what I've you know, figured out from these things. And one of the things that I figured out is that this theory is for that kind of person, because I mean, that's what's like, when I came to positive disintegration, I was like, Oh, my God, I've been through this a million times, (laughs) you know, like, I've disintegrated and, you know, reintegrated so many times from, like, just these struggles. And I don't know, it's, 
it's just a framework that I didn't find anywhere else. Yeah. But yeah, so I just want to say again, like I did that podcast with Jen this morning and she's a PG person and we ended up talking quite a bit about that, you know, and I'm thinking to myself as we're meeting and doing this, uh, this recording tonight that like, I know a lot of PG people and being in your group and like the conversations there are really incredible compared to a typical Facebook group. It's, it's like such a privilege to be able to connect with other PG people. And I'm excited that we're having this conversation because I know that there are going to be so many people who are just going to be thrilled to be able to hear about these experiences and resonate and feel like, you know, mirrored by us. I'm hoping that that is the case. I'd love to know that uh, we've maybe opened some minds and also maybe helped some people who didn't feel, who felt lonely realize, oh, I'm not alone in this regard. I think that you are doing such good work to help the world now, Chris, be it individual clients through therapy, be it the impact you and Emma are having with this one podcast, not to mention your other work around Dabrowski stuff. I mean, I guess I hope for this grace for myself as I continue to be vulnerable and share my own stories and experiences. But I think it's so critical to not throw people away, mm-hmm. to not discard people based on a past experience, especially a person with high openness to experience who tried things. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the desire to elect like uh, politicians who have never tried anything in their life versus someone who has tried and has overcome and now has a well-rounded perspective. And I just appreciate that your childhood, your youth does not fully define who you are now. It's a part of the journey, but it's not, um, oh, Chris is a druggie. We shouldn't listen to her you still have good stuff to say and you've, I don't know, that growth I think is more important. My other big um, idea that's been hit a few times tonight is the concept of exposure. When I took um, gifted tests, I took the Wonderlick, for example, but I could tell it was more um, crystallized. And I, as I went through and answered most of them fine and not all of them exactly in the time limit, Sometimes I could remember learning some of those concepts in school. And then some of the other questions, I remember never having learned that. I never learned that. I don't know. We talked about exposure around um, intuition type one. If you haven't had that exposure to all those different eggs, chicken eggs, then you are going to have less success at choosing which egg is male and which egg is female. But the more exposure you have, you know, the more you can grow. And I, I get concerned about the influence of media um, on our populations, all of humanity right now. But thinking about Dabrowski and how social and environmental factors are part of that influence, part of that pressure that makes up the world we live in. And if you're not exposed to different discourses, if literally everyone in your whole life and whole education and whole workplace and whole community and whole family are all in lockstep with some ideology and you never hear anything else, you are going to have a hard time challenging that. And you're going to, I think you're going to feel more distress. But that moment you encounter a different perspective you realize that things can be 
created, that there's more autonomy to this than it seems, mm-hmm. that you can take a step to increase your exposure to something. And even, you know, in talking about um, the health diagnoses within Elysian, mm-hmm. you know, that's exposure. People have an idea of other diagnoses and they can share them. Oh, absolutely. No one had ever heard of any. They aren't going to magically come up with the answer. And um, I think about how we have to invest in gifted education to ensure that all of our students, but and our gifted students, are receiving a breadth of education that allows them access to these different topics and concepts, mm. such as even knowing intuition exists. You know, even though I was struggling with drugs and mental health issues when I was young, mm-hmm. I was also so focused on like helping people. And I just knew even when I was in high school that like I was supposed to use my story somehow to help people, you know, and it was weird because I didn't understand it. Like it was, it was like an intuition thing. I realize now that I just knew that I had to learn how to do public speaking and I had to write my, like I've been writing a journal since I was 16. And it was like, I had this whole mission and I knew that I was meant to help heal people somehow, but I had no idea how that was supposed to look. And so, like, at the end of high school, after I went to drug treatment, I wrote a book, like my autobiography at 18, which is such a bad idea. Nobody (laughs) should publish an autobiography when you're that young because, you know, you have, like, this whole rest of your life and it's just too early. (laughs) But anyway, you know, I did that and, like, it just – it's because I wanted to share my story to, like, help other people. And I've always had this drive to, like, use my experiences to help and – It's so weird that, you know, all that time in my 20s when I was like in and out of the mental hospital, I was like, God, why did I end up with this life? I was supposed to be like a genius, you know, and I ended up like a mental patient by the time I was in my 20s. And it's like now that I discovered this theory and I have like this framework for understanding this experience that I had, I know that I'm meant to talk about it and bring it to other people because they need to know about it and they're never going to hear about it in gifted ed. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I know that there are so many people out there suffering because they're listening to the podcast and they're letting us know like the difference that it's making in their lives. So I'm just, yeah, I'm just grateful to be here and to give you both the platform to talk with us and share your experiences too. But so tell me or tell us about like, you're, I mean, saving the world is kind of the final topic mm-hmm. I, I had in mind for today. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of mine. Like, it's, so, it's been this weird drive that I didn't understand until I was in my 40s. So <laughs> what about you, whoever wants to go first? I definitely always had that drive. It's probably in no little part to learning how to read from comic books. So you can pretty much thank the X-Men for why I could read at all. Uh, <laughs> um and I, similar to you, like I had a, um, a really strong empathy for others, and even the sympathy as well. And always trying to, I always wanted to be help to the point to I was arguably a, a people pleaser. And as I got older, I think that instinct never went away, but it did refine itself a bit, and it did um, evolve to to some extent. So I, I to this day I have a very strong drive for um, quote unquote I, I wouldn't call it saving the world but doing my part to make the world better. Um, it's chiefly the Elysian Trust is how I 
how I figured it would be the, the easiest route and the most natural route for me to do that is to find other people who were doing something phenomenal. Like, we, I, I could go down the line. We have one member, his name is Edmund Williams. He's fine with me mentioning him by name. Um, he's working on food scarcity. I have another member, her name is Monica Anderson. Uh, she's working on, I would call humane um, artificial intelligence. And it's just, uh, again, there's, I'd be here all day just running down the list, but it's been really my, my honor to figure out how I can help them personally. Um, and that's not necessarily any, any big way, but, and also how the organization can help, um, because helping them is putting them in the position where they can truly do something phenomenal for humanity as well. I don't know if there is a huge overlap or connection between, uh, say, being profoundly gifted and having that urge. Because I got to tell you, there's I've run into a lot of people in the profoundly gifted community who are are cut from that cloth of um, wanting to make things better. I've also run into a lot of narcissists. And yes, yeah. So it's yeah. I mean, it's not a secret. <laughs> It may be a secret to people on the outside, but yeah, there there is a thing. Like Keith Renier, he made the news recently. He was in one of my groups, not not Elysian. He never belonged there, but um, one of the groups I belong to, and there's others out there. Um, they yeah, it's a thing. So we're trying to figure out. Um, I, I don't think we're in the position, or we even necessarily, thankfully, need to be in the position where we have to force the gifted people on, on this planet to do something to help make the world better. I think there's enough of us out there with that drive to take care of that. One thing I would love to see occur is for the society to support them when um, they have uh, that spark to do something that can help a wide swath of humanity or the world or the just the planet itself um I, I what i see a lot of times especially when i worked for the think tank idea connection it, it was like um someone would throw problems like okay yeah we messed up go fix it i mean wouldn't it be great if we if we listened to people who had those insights and had those that for lack of a t- better term, genius. And I'm using genius in the sense that uh, there's that saying, talent hits a target no one else can hit. Genius hits a target no one else can see. So I'm talking about the people with that kind of vision where they could see the problem before it even occurred. Wouldn't it be nice if they were at the table to prevent it to begin with instead of always playing catch-up to fix the mistakes, you know? Um, I'd love to see that occur. I think Elysian, we're working towards that. We're not fully there yet. We would need to partner with other organizations to do that. We definitely need more private funding to do that. But at least least we're marching there, right? So, yeah, overall, I think there's... um, I think a lot of us have that urge and a lot of us don't. I'm not sure it's a wise investment to spend time on trying to create that that drive in people who don't have it. It's not to say that uh, it's a waste of time. It is to say that there's only 
there's only so many uh, there's only so many hours in a day. I'd rather um, invest them in the people who already want to do that anyway. You'll probably get farther with them. And thankfully, there's lots of gifted people who will do it. What you just made me think of, and and that was so beautifully said, and I couldn't agree more. And it just reminds me of something that I was talking with Michael Bihovsky about. We had the transcript made for our first episode, and I, you know, I shared it with Michael, and he gave me like some feedback about you know things that I didn't get quite right in the first episode. And one of them is like you know was about overexcitabilities. But anyway, we started talking about the kernel of inner transformation. Like, what is it? that separates people who are in multi-level development from other people. And I feel like it's what you just described, and it's what we experienced, where it's this drive to help people, like it's something to focus on that's bigger than ourselves, you know? And that if you have that, then, you know, you have the potential to make a real difference to the world. And I don't know, maybe that's the kernel of inner transformation, like that, that empathy that's there, or, you know, again, like, being able to focus on a problem outside of yourself. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know. I'm still in the process of learning myself. <laughs> but um, I think there's something there that what you're saying, I can feel it. But fleshing it out, that's going to take time for me. Yeah. <laughs> that's the hard part. For yeah. sure. And, you know, I mean, yeah, that's that's my question, though, right now is, you know, like nurturing that when you find it, like however it is. And I think that that's how you help people out of addiction and I think it's how you, you know, help people like take the steps to change their life. Anecdotally, people have said to me, oh, you get along with the people about plus or minus one standard deviation from where you are kind of vibe. And um, they said that's why managers should be like at the 80th percentile so they can connect with the employee population and that person was sort of implying that's why I would not be a good manager because I would not connect well. But I think even with my 148 or whatever, I do care. I care about other people that are not me, but I see some high IQ groups and people that are very selfish, very um, I'm hot shit and no one else's kind of vibe. And, um, I also see Mm, socially, societally, how we're about 50-50. Like half of America would get rid of the other half and pick pick an issue. And um, that's frustrating Mm, to me because, once again, we're throwing away people without having a path back to the community, a path back to connection. I've gotten involved a lot. A lot of my childhood, especially growing up in religious organizations um, spend a lot of time with like community service and giving back. And I, I enjoyed that. And as an adult, I frequently joined committees and clubs and organizations and boards to hopefully do something positive. And I've been working to kind of streamline that down and try to find areas where I want to actually exert my effort because with getting involved in community organizations. Oh my gosh, there came so much frustration and exhaustion. Maybe I could try it again now that I know myself more. But trying to communicate creative connections and ideas with people that are not on my level did not work. The amount of energy 
people have to spend to tell me that we have to do the status quo is hilarious. People are always telling me that, oh, we can't do, we can't do. I am over that. I, I don't want to spend time in a pretend position, not actually doing anything. Why would I do that? I could have the same effect by not participating and spending my energy on something else. Um, personally, I'm also so concerned about our exploration across the galaxy. And I, I am more interested in saving the galaxy than just our world because we're, <laughs> I think we have huge potential to mess up gala- galaxial governance. There you go. And um, galaxial governance, if we aren't careful. And we certainly have not figured everything out here on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't understand what policies, procedures, practices, status quo we're taking up to the galaxy. But um, I really worry about that a lot. And I'm trying to find my place in saving the world, I suppose. And I think some people saving the world could be very small radius, very localized. Maybe they are caretaking and raising their own children or nurturing their friends and community at a strong level. I think it's burdensome to act as though people with high IQ are obligated to do some world-saving solution, but I think everyone should be encouraged to nurture Mm -hmm. your local community and help your community thrive. And even if that's like cooking good food and nutritious meals for your family, um, I think there are ways that some of that can express at a smaller level. But then if we have all of this PG-ness, let's do something grand. Let's do something great. And it's always so inspiring as I've gotten involved with this um, profoundly gifted community to see how many people are doing things. And I I feel inspired. And while I still flicker with that imposter syndrome and Mo was mentioning, um, it feels more possible than ever to actually do, to actually do in the field. And um, we'll see where I end up with that. It's interesting, Joy, you're talking about acting locally because I think sometimes when we view saving the world, we think of it as that, you know, superhero comic book looking one person or one team just goes out and saves everybody. Um, And we don't see it as a collective effort because Mm -hmm. if there's one person in each community doing their part and each of those communities are helped, then by default, the entire world's being saved and you're right there's this pressure on sometimes gifted people to like you've got to single-handedly go out there and save the entire planet when it's not it's like if you go out there and save your community and everybody else is doing the same thing then we'll get there in in the end and the other thing that I wonder about is whether that mentality then more relates to people who have been through disintegration and had those experiences than it does just directly to their IQ. So it would be interesting to see that the people, if the people that have that drive are the ones that have developed that empathy um, and have developed that view of others outside of themselves. I am a big fan mm-hmm. of collective action. But you have to have a community. You have to have a goal that you're working on together. It's rare for anything magical to happen from one sole individual. It's usually a team and um, partnerships and supports and funders. And um, I think 
encouraging PG people to nurture that community, that tribe, that um, helping someone who's not yourself. I think that that'll make all the difference as we <laughs> continue to create a better world, hopefully. And I'd even go beyond that and say we don't all necessarily need like the same focus. We don't have to be an army. You can help the world mm -hmm. in the way that matches with you and your gifts and your passions. So one person might be you know, working on something to do with the environment. Someone else is working on something to do with homelessness. And even when one person has the breakthrough, you know, it takes a team to implement that. And I think um, I'm a big fan of just encouraging that community and connection. Yeah, at the end of the day, all of the work starts from us as individuals. And, you know, you have to do your own work to be able to, you know, make the difference that you want to make. I mean, if there's one lesson that I've learned, it's that like all of the suffering that, you know, we go through is is how we learn how to, to have empathy and like cultivate that. And, you know, I think it goes back to exposure, like what, you know, you were talking about earlier. No, so I did want to mention one thing, uh, something Emma prompt, said prompted the, I, the memory. One of the groups in Elysian is called Heart Problems Club. It's very on-the-nose name for the group, but it lives up to it, uh, especially back in the heyday, things have slowed down recently. But the group itself, I think the, the majority of the, the members, I don't think they would even... I, qualify as what you would call profoundly gifted their strengths i mean some of them are i, I need to make that clear but not all of them or even most i think what the most common trait they have is that they um demonstrate a really high amount of tenacity so they'll stick to uh they'll find a problem that they really really care about or or just piques their interest or whatever and they'll stick to it until they get a solution um and that when they decide to work in teams they demonstrate a really high level of c collective intelligence um one of the one of the projects we worked on a few years ago um, it was a MIT solve challenge and we just, just a few of us, it was only four or five of us. We decided, Hey, let's see what we can do to come up with a solution. And we wound up in the semifinals of the MIT solve. And, um, it was a beautiful illustration of what can happen when there's an emergent property, a, a synergistic type of intelligence that emerges from people collaborating and doing it well. And I've also noticed in um, some of the higher IQ groups, um, the ability to work together is amazingly absent. And the few times that you do see it demonstrated is they're almost using their their uh, collaborations to stab each other and someone else in the back or something like that it's very disturbing to me so um i would say for, at least from what all my experiences i would say that everyone has a role um that they can't they can choose to pursue or not to help uh make this world better it could be as a collaborator 
It could be just someone with an incredible amount of tenacity or empathy, or it could be um, what we can call a quote-unquote genius. I, I've met people. I've, I've went to some of the finest universities in the world, so I've been around Nobel Prize winners and everything like that. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's whatever. But it doesn't necessarily blow me away as opposed to, say, uh, one of the directors and uh, another member of the Legion Trust, his name is Theodore Henderson. He's been making dramatic changes um, for the homeless community in Los Angeles. I think I'm... Honestly, there's days where I'm more in awe of what he's accomplished and what um, Maria Holt has accomplished than any one of the people I know who has a Nobel Prize. You know, we, it, what I find even more fascinating than all that is seeing how I can how these folks can be connected to each other to create a pipeline to accelerate um, a solution to some problem that we're facing, big or small. Um, because honestly, I gotta say, in my opinion, all the problems are connected anyway. So, um, it's awesome that, to have, to address it at different points. You're doing such great work. I mean, your Elysian is amazing. I can, I've seen it like so many times already just in the group and, you know, these stories, like, of course I got to hear you talk about this stuff at the panel in March. So, yeah. So, um, Elysian Trust is the organization um, it is. It was a 501c3 nonprofit. We revamped uh, earlier this year. We are officially a for-profit now, and um, it it's made all the difference in the world. The organization itself has uh, it fosters a lot of um, what we call social clubs, or in terms of grant writing and social programs that. Um, support some type of cognitive ability. Uh, I've mentioned them multiple times now, IQ, uh, critical thinking, intuition, so forth and so on. People can join Elysian Trust through one of those groups, including Heart Problems Club, which has nothing to do with any type of IQ test or any type of cognitive ability test. Um, It has to do with the mindset. And what we've, after a few years, what we learned is that the members in certain groups, they wanted to know what the members in other groups were like. So we decided to create a discussion forum that was an umbrella for all of them. And that's called Elysian Fields. So Elysian Fields is where people from Volant, which is the High IQ Club, can talk to people from Trishula, which is the Intuition Club, and so forth and so on. Um, the it it can be eye opening for many people who they they discover they're all speaking English or sometimes Spanish or whatever the language is. But even though they're all speaking English, they're discover they're actually speaking a different language for the first time in their life. They're like, oh, okay, this is uh, different. And a lot of times they there's these cross sections. You people, autistic people, and uh. In, in, in Terabang, which is the creative thinking group, they find out they have a lot in common with autistic people in Volant, the, the high IQ group as an example. Um, to join, you just have to reach out to um, to Elysian Trust. The email is info, I-N-F-O, at org. 
um, and tell us which groups you would like to apply to and definitely promise to do two things that we are absolutely serious about one you'll be civil two um, you'll participate at least once a year it's not a crazy request but you'd be amazed how big of a screener those two things are and um, yeah come meet your neurodivergent tribe and other people who are like you and quite a few people who are not and still find that that unity and that bond across the uh, across the internet um, currently we all hang out largely at on the Facebook groups we are building our own website well actually our website already exists but we're building the discussion forum for it it's uh it's like item number six on our list we got so many other things we have to take care of first but it's coming and once it's off of Facebook we're hoping a, a more people will participate because uh, quite a few people uh, they're waiting they they aren't so crazy about Facebook for various reasons so um, hopefully once it's set up that uh, we can get even more people there and more importantly we can get more projects fostered and supported because we're really 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 passionate about finding people who um, they don't just have a brain they want to do something with it specifically to help others and improve things we absolutely would love to find you and support you and help you discover what all you can do it's making me so happy to hear you describe this and you know like recruit for your organization (laughs) i just i'm yeah do it if you're listening to this and you're drawn to this go for it like we are your people and so yes join us yes absolutely I feel very blessed to have spent four hours today talking with PG people about the PG experience. And so it's been wonderful. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, You and Emma have made this incredibly comfortable for me. And uh, that says a lot (laughs) because I do not (laughs) like, uh, I'm not crazy about um, social interactions like this, but um, you made it extremely worthwhile. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you joined us. (laughs) And thanks to you both for sharing, because this is it's not easy to talk about being PG is special to get to to connect like this. So, oh, absolutely. But it's also like misunderstood is what I'm saying. Like, you know, it's you spend so much of your life not being around people who get you that it's, you know, it's a big deal when you can do it. Yeah, and honestly, that does result in a little bit of awkwardness for a lot of people who are totally new to all of this when they first join. But that's okay. Uh, so many of us have been there in the past. Um, and before you know it, they, yeah, for a lot of people, it's like, alas, I finally found my tribe. That is what we hear over and over and over again. It's cool. And I know that that's what we're doing with the podcast. And it's it's exciting because this is like what I'd hoped for with it. But it's yeah. cool to see it actually happen. So thanks so much for being with us. And Oh, absolutely. Also want to thank both of our guests. I think it's been a great um, set of conversation. And we really appreciate it. And Chris, thank you too as well, as always, for co-hosting with me. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us in the second part of this two-part journey, and we hope that you've enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. 
Positive Disintegration podcast is funded by the Dabrowski Centre. If you like what you've heard, please consider donating through the link in the show notes. And if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, give us a rating or leave a review. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Instagram. And until next time, keep walking the path to your authentic self.